0: Hello and welcome to Diving Deep, part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, consistently listeners who are healthcare professionals ask us to host shows on burnout. I thought it'd be a good way to start the year by diving deep into this topic. What can you report?
1: Jeremy, as our listeners know, burnout is a major problem in medicine and getting worse by the year. The term was coined by Christina Maslach and Susan Jackson in 1981. At that time, they published the Maslach Burnout Inventory. This tool measures the three key components of burnout, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and feelings of reduced personal accomplishment since then and especially over the past decade clinicians have reported ever higher levels of burnout On surveys doctors blame three factors bureaucratic tasks by which they refer to the need to obtain prior authorization for diagnostic studies and treatments that they believe are needed the electronic health record which was programmed to maximize claims and billing not facilitate patient care and third having to see too many patients each day. In the pandemic, burnout rose even higher, particularly for clinicians taking care of the sickest patients with COVID, as ED doctors and critical care physicians. And it rose among women physicians who found themselves having to do double work in the home and in the office or hospital. Today, burnout rates are in the 60 to 70% range.
0: Do you find that surprising? Jeremy,
1: On one hand, it is surprising. Doctors and nurses today are the beneficiaries of groundbreaking advancements in science, technology, and disease treatments. With so many sophisticated tools available today, able to diagnose and cure patient problems, you'd think that now would be the golden era of clinician fulfillment. And yet, this period of radical advancement is marked by growing dissatisfaction and an exodus of physicians. Last year alone, 71,309 doctors quit the profession. But on the other hand, it's very understandable that the demands on clinicians have grown year over year and doctors feel increasingly frustrated, unfulfilled and exhausted. This sentiment permeates the entire profession from newly trained to senior doctors. Having said that, there's nearly a twofold difference based on in the rate of burnout based on specialty.
0: Are federal officials aware of the magnitude of the problem and the impact it's having on both doctors and patients?
1: Yes. At a recent press briefing, Dr. Deborah Aury, Chief Medical Officer at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, highlighted this growing threat to the healthcare profession. She said, quote, burnout among these workers has reached crisis levels. And she noted that COVID-19 pandemic had intensified longstanding challenges within the workforce. She pointed out that fatigue, depression, anxiety, substance abuse disorders, and suicidal thoughts are on the rise. And she highlighted the data which indicate that burned out clinicians don't provide the same level of excellence as those who are less fatigued and that their patients, as a result, don't do as well.
0: For several years, we've talked about the high rates of burnout. Given the data, I'm surprised at how little progress has been made in addressing it. What are your thoughts?
1: Jeremy, this is a crucial question. I have two answers to explain why so little has improved. The first is that the requests that clinicians have made, both to diminish their workload and to eliminate the hurdles that they have to get over, that these will cost a significant number of dollars. Insurers worry that without prior authorization and requirements to document the medical care provided, that medical costs and insurance premiums will soar. In addition, if our nation's going to reduce the number of patients that doctors see each day without transforming how medical care is provided, that would require a lot more clinicians. And with healthcare already consuming close to one in $5 that our nation spends annually, businesses which provide coverage to half of the nation and governmental agencies that pay for the other half are unwilling to do so despite clinician unhappiness. The second reason, we may be misdiagnosing the origin of the burnout that clinicians feel.
0: That's provocative, Robbie. Please expand.
1: Jeremy, in medicine, when an ICU patient fails to get better after a week of intensive care, doing more of the same treatment proves futile and frequently harmful. Instead, it's better to take a step back reassess both the initial diagnosis and treatment plan. And when doctors do this, they usually find that their earlier assumptions were incorrect and that they've overlooked something vital. I worry that we may be missing the bigger picture relative to clinician burnout. After a decade of failing to solve the problem, I think it's time for a diagnostic re-evaluation.
0: How do you propose we rethink the problem?
1: Well, first let me stress that both the personal experience of clinicians and their dissatisfaction with healthcare today are valid, and they're both very real. Furthermore, the three causes that doctors point out are quite problematic. They get in the way of excellent medical care, and they have to be addressed. But I think there's another reason which might be even the most important. I recently read some new data on burnout from the nonprofit Commonwealth Fund, and this information Raise the possibility of a different diagnosis and shed light on a potential solution.
0: This sounds intriguing. Please tell our listeners more, Robbie.
1: Jeremy, if the main drivers of burnout were indeed greedy insurance execs and the American for profit healthcare system, then what you'd expect would be that the wealthy Western nations, all of which have universal healthcare coverage, which is paid for and provided by the government, that they would have dramatically lower rates of physician burnout than the United States. But the Commonwealth Fund report tells a different story. Surprisingly, primary care physicians in the U.S., they're in the middle of the pack when it comes to burnout. They have higher rates of satisfaction than than their peers in the United Kingdom, Germany, Switzerland, New Zealand, and Canada. And they trail the Netherlands, Sweden, France, and Switzerland on these same measures of satisfaction. So they're right in the middle. And as such, distinctly American challenges of prior authorization and EHR's program to maximize claims and billing, they could be contributing, but they can't be the full answer. If they were, clinicians in these other countries wouldn't be suffering at the same rate as doctors in the United
0: States. If physician burnout isn't a distinctly American phenomenon, Deriving from unique aspects of the US healthcare system, then what is causing Dr. ever greater dissatisfaction around the world?
1: Jeremy, I've pondered this question since I read the Commonwealth report. And my conclusion is that if Burnout isn't fundamentally caused by the corporatization of medical care, or the administrative burdens heaped on clinicians by private insurers, then it must reflect the evolution of illness itself.
0: I didn't expect that answer, Robbie. Can you expand on it?
1: For most of medical history, Jeremy, and throughout the 20th century, most patients went to doctors for acute medical problems that were urgent and sudden in their onset. These problems ranged from broken bones and appendicitis to heart attacks and pneumonia. When surgery antibiotics proved successful, patients typically healed up, returned to good health. And when the limitations of medicine in the past proved too great, Patients quickly succumbed to injury or illness and died. Back then, medicine was a simpler profession, with fewer clinical problems to solve and even
0: fewer treatments available. And what is different today?
1: Jeremy, today, chronic illnesses like cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, respiratory illnesses—these are most frequent and fat, and the, this is, these are the most frequent and fastest-growing problems that doctors treat. Take care of a patient with an acute illness, you're likely to see that patient four or five times in total. Except a patient onto your practice with multiple chronic conditions, you'll see that one individual at least three to four times a year for life. Provide medical care to 2,000 patients in the 20th century, the clinical load was manageable. Be responsible for the same number of people in the 21st, and the time needed will be two to three times greater and impossible to achieve effectively. For individual doctors, this rapid shift from acute to chronic illness has had a serious impact on their daily clinical demands that they have to address and their workplace satisfaction. It's akin to the difference between lifting a heavy weight once, challenging but manageable, and lifting a heavy weight repeatedly, again and again and again over a lifetime, completely exhausting. Industrialized nations everywhere are experiencing spikes in chronic disease that require lifelong care. In fact, the World Health Organization estimates that by the year 2050, chronic diseases will account get this, 86% of the world's 90 million deaths each year, a staggering 90% increase in absolute numbers from 2019.
0: To be more specific relative to the United States,
1: happy to, you, Jeremy. Today, chronic illnesses affect an alarming 60% of Americans. Obesity and diabetes are reaching epidemic levels, with clinicians' efforts to reverse these trends proving largely ineffective. Particularly concerning is the medication burden among senior citizens. 40% of Americans over 65 are on five or more prescription drugs. That's a rate that has tripled in the past two decades and 20% they're taking 10 or more drugs. The number of medications a person takes is a strong indicator of the amount of work and care they need. Almost all these pharmaceuticals require ongoing laboratory testing, monitoring the underlying problem, and questioning of the patient relatives to potentially encountering side effects from the drugs. Given the severity and volume of these problems today, It's no surprise clinicians are feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. As clinical pressures have risen over the past 20 to 30 years, doctors have been forced to see more and more patients a day, with less time for each. And when physicians have no choice but to cut corners in medical care delivery, they end the day feeling they haven't done their best. And that is the etiology and cause of moral injury, a term that describes the pain physicians experience when circumstances put them in a position to fail and result in harm to patients.
0: What do you see as the next step?
1: Jeremy, for more than a decade, we've thought of burnout as something that's inflicted on the medical profession by money-hungry villains. And for that reason, we've looked to other people, whether in the insurance realm or the government, to solve the problem. When we take a step back, and assume that the evolution of disease and the exponentially greater burden has created for clinicians is to blame, then the logical conclusion is that the solution will need to come from inside care delivery. Ultimately, unless we can find ways to reduce the demand for medical care, physicians, particularly those in primary care, will be even more burned out a decade from now.
0: Is it possible for clinicians to reduce demand?
1: Yes. Just imagine what would happen to doctors' daily workload if Americans experienced, let's say, 30% fewer chronic diseases and therefore had 30% fewer heart attacks, strokes, and cancer as a result. Imagine how much more fulfilling medicine would be if physicians saw, let's say, 20% fewer patients each day and had more time with ones that they had to see. Think about how much less exhausting it is to run on a treadmill that is 20% slower. If we could do this, I believe the clinicians would leave the office feeling more fulfilled and less exhausted each day. Rather than thinking about how can we add 20% more clinicians? What if there was a way to reduce demand by improving people's health and empowering them to reliably and safely care for many of their own medical problems?
0: That's intriguing. What are you thinking?
1: Before I answer, Jeremy, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting shrinkflation, the topic we discussed on last month's Diving Deep program. That approach decreases demand through the use of high-deductible health plans and through restrictive prior authorization requirements. But as a result, it compromises medical care and it produces higher costs in the future. And I'm definitely not in favor of overt rationing. That's a prescription for failure. It just can't work in the United States. The Oregon Medicaid experiment offers a profound example. Starting in 1989, a government task force brought patients and providers together to rank medical services by necessity. The plan was to provide only as many services as funding would allow. When the plan rolled out, public backlash forced the state to retreat. Anyone with a problem that wouldn't be covered no matter how minor protested. In the end, elected officials had no choice but to expand the total services provided, driving costs back up without any improvement in health or any relief for clinicians. Instead, I believe we can simultaneously improve quality, make care more convenient, and increase the affordability of medical care using modern technology, specifically generative AI. If at the heart of the burnout crisis lies a fundamental imbalance between the volume and complexity of patient health problems, think of that as the demand, and the amount of time that clinicians have to care for them, think of that as supply, then the opportunity comes from empowering patients to use gender of AI expertise in their home rather than insisting they come to the doctor's office for care. I don't mean today's version of ChatGPT, but the one available let's say, five years, which is projected to be 30 times more powerful than what is currently available. We can expect that with that power, it will be more reliable, able to help patients prevent and manage their chronic diseases, and able to diagnose and recommend treatment for common, not life-threatening medical problems. And because the technology would be available 24 by seven, we would expect greater patient adherence and improved clinical outcomes using technology to provide expertise to patients would be a superior solution for both the providers and the recipients of medical care. And done effectively, it would reverse both the surgeon chronic illnesses and the ongoing clinician burnout crisis.
0: Can technology alone accomplish this?
1: Unfortunately, the answer is no. Technology alone never drives performance, but it can be a catalyst for change, capable of helping people to move forward. Until now, we talked about working smarter, not harder, but we didn't have a way to accomplish it. Now we do. In a previous Diving Deep episode, we talked about how generative AI is different than all the other AI tools before, it, and is capable of generating broad expertise. In the same way that it currently allows users to paint a picture or write a song, Even though the person has no formal art or music training, it will be able to do the same for patients relative to their own medical care, even though they didn't go to medical school and maybe never even took a science class after high school. But the real problem will come from a partnership among doctor, patient and technology. That will be the most effective and safest approach to accomplishing the
0: goal. Will most people be interested in taking more responsibility for their own health? I
1: think we've really underestimated the desire of patients to become healthier and to use technology to more conveniently manage problems when they arise. Rather than a lack of motivation, I believe the limiting factor has been a deficit in the tools we made available for them to do so. American consumers today expect and they demand greater control over their lives and daily decisions, time and again. Technology has made this possible. Let's take stock trading, for example. That was once the sole domain of professional brokers and financial advisors. Today, online trading platforms give individual investors direct access to the market and a wealth of information to make prudent financial decisions. Likewise, technology has transformed the travel industry. Sites like Airbnb and Expedia empower consumers to book accommodations, schedule flights, and sign up for travel experiences directly bypassing the traditional travel agents. And a growing percentage of the population, they're thrilled to do so.
0: Are we ready to start now?
1: As I mentioned earlier, the current version of GPT-4 isn't up to the task. It still has problems with hallucinating, which means making up answers when it is stumped. And the corpus of information on which it has been trained, that only goes through spring of 2023. But given IT expertise, the expertise that exists in OpenAI, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, I'm optimistic that the technological challenges will be addressed. And updating the tools themselves, that's only a matter of money. And right now, billions, tens of billions of dollars are being poured into the industry. I'm confident that technology will soon democratize medical expertise, providing most Americans with the ability to take on accountability for a significant amount of what only clinicians can do today. And soon, plugins which connect this technology to wearable monitors, to electronic health records, to other sources of information, they'll be readily available. And as a result, patients will gain the ability to self diagnose and treat common, non life threatening medical problems, musculoskeletal ones, allergic, dermatological, viral complaints, and to better understand their diseases. And in that way, make more informed and better clinical decisions. How will
0: doctors feel about this shift?
1: Today, clinicians are justifiably skeptical of outsized AI promises. But as technology proves itself worthy, clinicians who embrace and promote patient empowerment will not only improve medical outcomes for patients, but also increase their own professional satisfaction. Doctors will have two choices. They can continue to run faster and faster each year just to stay in place. Or they can figure out how to use modern technology to improve the health of their patients and reduce the daily demands on providing in-office direct medical care. After a decade of telling the world about burnout and the pernicious impact it has, the problem will only become worse. Yelling louder won't make a difference. Solutions which will increase the cost of medical care They won't be viable. I see technology as the best and probably only option available.
0: Why are you optimistic this approach can succeed?
1: Jeremy, in the United States, health systems, but I mean the large hospitals and medical groups that heavily prioritize preventive medicine and chronic disease management, they're home to healthier patients and more satisfied clinicians. In these settings, patients are 30 to 50% less likely to experience a heart attack, stroke, or colon cancer, and 40% less likely to die from one of these life-threatening problems than patients in the rest of the nation. And that's because healthcare organizations, these particular ones, provide effective chronic disease prevention programs, and they assist individuals in managing their diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and asthma, and therefore, they can avoid these very expensive, life-threatening complications.
0: If this has such positive outcomes, why don't doctors do it today?
1: Jeremy, most primary care physicians would like to do this, but they don't have the time to accomplish it by themselves. According to one study, physicians would need to work 26.7 hours every day to provide all the recommended preventive chronic and acute care to a typical panel of 2,500 adult patients. In their office, once they evaluate a patient's acute problem and evaluate any changes in their underlying chronic diseases, there's just no time left in the visit to focus on the other aspects of the person's health. Of course, they could hire staff, but that wouldn't be cost-effective, particularly given how low reimbursement is for these preventive tasks. In contrast, CHAT-GPT costs less than a Starbucks latte a week. Now, they and their patients have the tool available to them that they need.
0: How might this approach work?
1: Generative AI technologies like ChatGPT will soon be able to offer patients more than just general advice about their chronic illnesses. They will give personalized health guidance by connecting to the electronic health record, even when those systems are spread across different doctors' offices, he will be able to analyze the totality of a patient's specific health data to provide tailored prevention recommendations. he will be able to remind patients when they need a health screening and help schedule it, even sort out transportation. And that's something Google or any other healthcare platform today can't currently do. Moreover, with new tools like doctor design plugins, which are expected as part of future ChatGPT updates, and data from fitness trackers and home health monitors. ChatGPT will be capable of not just displaying patient health data, but also interpreting it in the context of the person's health history and treatment plans. These tools will be able to provide daily updates to patients with chronic conditions, telling them how they're doing based on their doctor's specific plan. When the patient's health data shows that they're on the right track, there won't be a need for an office visit, saving time for everyone. But if something seems off, let's say a blood pressure reading remains excessively high after the start of antihypertensive drugs, clinicians will be able to quickly adjust medications, often without the patient needing to come into the office. And when in-person visits are necessary, the technology application will summarize all of the relevant patient health information so the doctor can quickly understand and act, rather than starting from scratch and spending the first half of the visit having to acquire it.
0: Has any progress been made towards this goal? ChatGPT is already helping
1: people make better lifestyle choices. It it can suggest diets tailored to individual health needs. It can complete shopping lists and provide recipes. It can offer personalized exercise routines and advice on mental health well-being. ChatGPT And MedPalm2 have already demonstrated the capability to diagnose a range of clinical issues as effectively and safely as most clinicians. Looking ahead, generative AI will offer even greater diagnostic accuracy. When symptoms are worrisome, it will alert patients, speeding up definitive treatment. Its ability to thoroughly analyze symptoms and to ask detailed questions of the patient without the time pressure that doctors feel, this will help eradicate many of the nation's current 400,000 annual deaths from
0: misdiagnosis. Are you saying that we would need fewer doctors in the future?
1: No. The goal of enhanced technology isn't to eliminate doctors. It's to give them the time they desperately need in their daily practices without further increasing already unaffordable medical costs. Rather than eroding physician-patient bond, the AI-empowered patient will strengthen it since clinicians will have more time to dive deeper into complex issues when people come to the office. If we use technology solely to decrease costs, it would make many of the current problems worse, not better. It would result in clinicians seeing more patients a day. It would lead to more chronic disease, more heart attacks, strokes and cancer, and even higher costs in the future. Think about the opportunity generative AI produces, not as technology replacing 25% of all doctors, with technology replacing 25% of what all doctors do today, accomplishing it with higher quality and more convenient access.
0: Aren't there AI companies already working to assist doctors?
1: Sure there are. There's a variety of AI companies, startups that are working to create tools that assist physicians with all sorts of administrative tasks. This could include electronic health record data entry, organizing office duties, submitting prior authorization requests to insurance companies, and a plethora of other ways. Accomplishing these bureaucratic functions, they'll help clinicians in the short run, but any tool that fails to solve the underlying imbalance between the supply, meaning clinician time, and the demand for medical services will be nothing more than a temporary fix. Our nation's caught in a vicious cycle of rising healthcare demand leading to more patient visits per day, per doctor, producing higher rates of burnout, poorer clinical outcomes, and even higher demand in the future. We need to break that vicious cycle. I'm optimistic that by empowering patients, using ChatGPT and other generative AI tools, that we can start a virtuous cycle, which technology reduces the strain on doctors, allowing them to spend more time with patients who need it the most. And this will lead to better health outcomes, lower rates of burnout among clinicians, and further decreases in overall health care demand.
0: What are you recommending we do now?
1: Jeremy, in the short run, I'd encourage both doctors and patients to become familiar with this technology. They can use the free version of ChatGPT or the free one that Google will be releasing soon, or they can purchase the next generation of ChatGPT, which is GPT-4 for a minimal fee, comparable, as we said, to maybe a monthly streaming video service contract. What they'll learn is that the quality of the answers they provide reflects the quality of the information they enter, and that the quantity of the data provided increases the excellence of the answers they receive. And like any technological tool, the more they innovate with it, the more adroit they'll become at using it. But I'd also like to suggest that medical groups, health systems, and medical societies take the opportunity to lead the way in applying generative AI to American medicine. These organizations can begin to educate the public on how to use this technology effectively. They can assist in connecting these applications to existing data sources. They can identify best practices and monitor to ensure that the recommendations that this technology makes that the recommendations are reliable and safe. Today, many of these organizations are focused on trying to prove that the current version of ChatGPT isn't as good as its members can accomplish without it. That's the equivalent of proving that an intern isn't as excellent as a chief resident or an attending doctor. The real question is whether five years from now, the technology will be just as expert or even potentially better. Burnout will always be a problem in healthcare. We need to find ways to minimize its prevalence and eliminate its destructive influence. Generative AI is an immensely powerful tool. It will rival the internet and the iPhone. These medical organizations, I think they should look ahead and figure out how to make the technology a valued partner with clinicians. If they do so, I'm optimistic they will find ways to improve the health of both the providers and the recipients of medical care. The time to start this process it's now.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast. we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare and Apple podcast Spotify or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthCarePodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.